0: Well, let's kick kick off with question one, is what's your particular connection with Brahms?
1: Right, well, um, primarily, I mean, I hadn't played a huge amount of Brahms when I was young, and it was only really when I went to college that I studied with um, a teacher called Alexander Kelly. OK. And he introduced me, really, to um, the Handle variations, and I just thought, well, this is fantastic. Um, everything that Brahms seemed to have, Put on the music seemed to make perfect sense. I don't know if that. I don't want that to sound sort of conceited or anything, but it, it just, it, it all just seemed to, to say something specific. Mm. And I found that much. Uh, it came to be much clearer than it did with other composers. Mm. Uh, and so even now, there's, there doesn't. I've never come across anything that I've been totally flummoxed by. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as that, you know, the logic behind it I find is is very, very clear, but it's also this uh, very deep meaning um, to his music, uh, there's a sort of soulfulness and a light and a shade to it, that I also found that when I listened to people playing Brahms, I didn't really hear what I wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. I felt that he was always approached in a very sort of heavy, uh, word use the word Germanic, <laughs> But, you know, he was all kind of stodgy and heavy yes. and he was serious all the time. And then I just felt, no, no, this is full of lightness and and charm. And, you know, he, he's, he, he's dancing. Yes. And so that's really the connection that I feel with Brahms.
0: Um, just, just uh, I don't want to waylay you, but do you think that's because people sort of think of him in terms of the orchestral music and then they apply their thinking to yeah. the... Yeah, yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think also you know perhaps uh, I know that you know his solo music was not he, he went slightly out of fashion and it wasn't played as as much as perhaps the two concertos and so as a result, I think people started to kind of feel they needed to force the sound out okay to you know to battle with the the, the, the orchestra because there's so much concertante writing there Mm-hmm. but also uh i don't know I think quite often they this is kind of um scenario where you think okay Brahms late romantic romantic equals pedal Mm -hmm. therefore it must be lots of pedal Mm -hmm. because he's late romantic and i just can't understand that at all because if you look at the score he uses plenty of techniques where he'll actually lose the bass note or reinstate it but one octave higher or even two octaves higher so it's a constantly moving bass Mm -hmm. he's constantly clearing the textures Mm -hmm. And even though then people say, well, oh, yeah, but why are there so many double thirds in his, his chords and his... Well, at the same time, he's wanting a particular color because more than any other composer for piano, um, and this is quite ast- astounding, really, when you think about it, he uses the word leggera more than any other composer. Okay. That's more than, you know, Chopin, ugh, Debussy, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, it's quite astonishing, and yet people just don't associate that word with... Mhm. he's constantly saying leggero, leggerissimo, sempre leggero. Mm-hmm. He puts it everywhere.
0: No, interesting. Yeah.
1: You know, and, and so you think, well, is he doing that Cindy, especially when he's saying sempre, he's doing that really as an underlining the fact, so please don't forget that I want this leggero. So even though he looks as though there's lots of notes, you know, and it uh, uses used the words, you know, this pigeonhole of a composer heavyweight piano music, it's the textural thing. It's got nothing to do with, you know, just heaviness of attack and that sort of thing. I mean, does
0: he ever put Legello in kind of unexpected places where it looks big and heavy, but, in fact, it, or does it tend to be in the stuff that looks lighter, if you see what I mean?
1: Um, no, no, he puts it in stuff that looks lighter. I mean, there are, there are lots of notes, thick chords. Um, OK. He'll still put legato. OK, in. that's
0: wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Th- thank you for answering that question. Not, <laughs> not very well-phrased question. <laughs> 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 um, I'd be right thinking it's, it's sort of the big variations are very much and, and I presume the late works are the ones that are, are the most the ones most people think of first is that right?
1: Yes that is true um, and I I mean looking at you know the thing about uh, whether you know some under underappreciated or under expressed yes. uh, pieces and there are two that come to mind straight away one is actually um, the second sonata
2: mm-hmm.
1: well primarily the first sonata if you, you know you know what I mean um, it's I don't know why. It's, I suppose it's a little bit... I think there's perhaps too much fantasy or freedom that pe- people don't associate with bronze. Right. Um, you know, the fact that he was very comfortable working within specific parameters. I mean, obviously, the variation form really suited him. Uh, and he just kind of goes off on one, if you... If you... <laughs> Yeah. It's going the technical term, <laughs> um, and and yet it, it just shows what imagination the guy had at such an early age, uh, and and also the um, the confidence to actually write something like that. You know, mm-hmm. the ending of, 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 of the entire sonata. Which which sonata is this? this we talk second, second yeah. The one in A shop. yeah. Yeah. Like which actually, I think, is a very tight sonata. I think you know it's, it's held together very strongly. It's, it's just that perhaps I know that he was he probably had too many ideas for the publishers, and they felt you know actually it needs to be a continuation from from Beethoven, and this is not Beethoven. So let's go you know for a more standard thing. So therefore, he then did uh, the, the C my the C major sonata, Opus One, mm-hmm. which is a much more sort of standard format. Mm-hmm. So I can understand that. I mean, there's there's a sort of pragmatism coming into it as well there. Mm-hmm. But I I see I feel that because of that, the the, the second sonata is underplayed um, and underappreciated. And the other piece that really surprises me, well, it actually doesn't surprise me because it's probably not so much as a concert piece. It's more a very intimate salon salon piece, and that is the Schumann variations, mm-hmm. which I think are just they're genius. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also goes into another aspect of, of Schumann, uh, of, of Brahms, that I find fascinating, in that uh, he can't help it. He just loves canons. Mm-hmm. I think he was in love with them, the whole idea. <laughs> and out of any other set of variations, this is the one that has just so many canons. Okay. He's got one that's a canon between the, the, the accompaniment
2: uh, mm-hmm.
1: and, and the main melody. Mm-hmm. And it's so well hidden. That actually, I noticed it about three months after I'd been learning it. Right. And I'm looking for them as well. Right. It's just, it's just genius. Uh, it's, it's, it's so intimate. It's almost a, it's almost as if he's writing for himself, mm-hmm. personal sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and perhaps that's one of the reasons why he doesn't come across so strongly in a public performance. Okay. Kind of suffers because of that. And was it
0: intended as a as a a private work or?
1: Um, I think it's a very it's a very personal sort of um, you know present to Robert and Clara. Uh, Okay. I I don't know. I I mean I suspect that all these all his compositions were intended to be performed. I don't think you know unless he did something more as as an exercise like um, say the yeah the Bach Schercon for left hand. Mm Hmm. um, This is much more sort of to do with the teaching aid, you know, and, and also, you know, all his um, exercises as well. But I think wh- he put so much work into these compositions that I think he intended them all to be performed in. OK. Probably.
0: OK. Thank you. And this is slightly not really moving on from that so much, but, <laughs> but to what degree do you think it is sort of early, middle and late? I mean, that that's, uh, you know, obviously one always thinks of Beethoven in those terms. Yes, but...
1: yes. Um OK. I, I don't buy into this idea at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I just feel that Brahms was fully formed at the age of eighteen, mm-hmm. and and a prime example would be something like the Four Ballads, Opus Ten. You could take any of those, and you could insert them into Opus One One Eight or One. Okay,
0: that's interesting.
1: They wouldn't sound out of context at all.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I think people like to to say that you know composers have a. a and early, middle, and late. Uh, And it it lends a certain weightiness, you know, especially when you get to these late works and the fact that there's four sets of very small, intimate pieces. Um, But then there are very beautiful, intimate movements in some of the sonatas that are one, two, and five. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't think he does anything radical. The one thing that is fascinating is, um, is that he... He uses the word marcato quite a lot mm-hmm. in compositions.
2: Mm-hmm. <clears throat>
1: and sometimes people associate that as well. You know, it's kind of these long stroke, uh, you know, bow strokes and this sort of thing and going, and this Brahmsian sound, you know, this depth of sound. Mm-hmm. So you'd actually expect him to use a marcato marking in his score.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But in the first movement of the first sonata, he uses it three times.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then that's it. He never uses it again in any of his in any of his piano. Okay, okay. <clears throat> what he does after that is he uses accents. Okay. So they're a little bit like the Chopin-esque accents. You know those slightly longer ones um, that are uh, not necessarily attacked, but they're more sort of a lean into it. Mhm. Mhm. So um, Brahms is using an accent in that. Uh, respect so there's quite a lot of variation within the attack of an accent but he just doesn't use a marcato marking anymore okay language so he's decided on his language in opus one or theoretically Interesting. Okay. yeah yeah Two, if you yeah, right. yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um and he's decided <clears throat> well actually i don't need to do that you know if i just say you know sempre marcato or you know ben marcato or something then it's there people know just picking up on what.
0: <clears throat> when do you think the kind of this apparent orthodoxy on what Brahms is about? Where, when did that? When was that established? This idea of the, you know, big heavy marcato. Where, where, where do you think that? What period did that come from in 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 musical in performance history?
1: I don't know. Really. I think it probably started coming into sort of the nineteen twenties and thirties. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I think you know the the. the the piano's obviously gone much, you know, more powerful. Suddenly they're on, you know, nine-foot concert grand. Uh I mean, it's interesting. My, the piano I practice on at home is a Broadwood. Mm-hmm. And it's an 1897. Oh, gosh. Mm. So it's only two years after the death of gosh. the bombs. Yeah. So, um, and it was a kind of a newish model, apparently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But it, it's not. But it's still quite a big sound. It's quite a you know a meaty sort of sound. Yes. Uh, but not overpowering. And you can kind of feel that in, in Brahms. It doesn't have to be so huge. There are some moments when he will ask for you know 3S, But on the whole, those, those are rare.
0: And which piano will you be using at the Wigmore?
1: I'll be using the house piano, the Steinway. The Steinway.
0: Okay. Yeah. Because they got a name slips me. The, the,
1: the Bosendorfer. Bosendorfer, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll be trying them both. Probably, um, it, it just depends. Really, um, I don't know, really, on, on how they feel. I'm, I'm much more interested in, in the actual action of them, especially some of these pieces are quite technically demanding. So, it's more to do with the feel because you can always do a lot with the sound anyway. Okay. It's, it's much more. Uh...
0: So, so is the Broadwood. That's your standard piano to practice everything on.
1: Yes. yes yeah that's
0: that's interesting yeah because i was just uh, I was doing something else with someone they were they've recorded um nicholas Angelich Angelic has recorded the last two Beethoven caliico concertos on a on a, a play l from a similar period oh, yeah, and it's just interesting to it's it's just interesting thirty years ago, you know, there was this all this excitement when when people were playing forte pianos first, and it's just interesting how it's moved on over the over that time, isn't it
1: Yes it is yeah, yeah. Yeah, I so, mean, but also I mean the concert halls are bigger now as well, so I can understand you know you need um, more powerful pianos.
0: How much are you thinking in terms of the the Wigmore's uh, characteristics when you're preparing for the series?
1: Um well primarily the, the 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 programming of the of the series was really just working out composers that I felt um Played an important part in Brahms' life, mm. know, or 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 also maybe composers that I felt I could hear in Brahms,
2: mm-hmm. the
1: influences. So um, and then choosing the, the the particular pieces by those composers that I felt would be appropriate, you know, to fit in and with with the particular pieces by Brahms. So, for instance, I mean Brahms and Bach for me was a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. But, um, it's it's just the the linearity of, of, of Bach uh, that I feel is very strong in Brahms, and that's also another thing that I don't feel gets um, mentioned enough, mm-hmm. that I think probably after Bach he is the most linear composer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea was you know, to actually have these, these sets of variations, really, because they, 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 they show beautiful lines and they show intricate... Um, and the musicianship, and you know the workings out of things and the logic behind everything mm-hmm. um, and so the, those those pieces seem to fit together the the second con- concert, which is with the Beethoven mm. I wanted to put that particular Beethoven sonata in simply because well, first of all, there's a sort of a fantasy feel in the first movement, but in the final movement, it's a set of variations, and there are no variations by Brahms in this okay, yep. So yeah, pushing it the other way around. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The third one, the Brahms plus Schubert. Um, this I I've always felt that the first sonata by Brahms is not a continuation of uh, the Hammerklavier, mm-hmm. and actually I think it's the Wander Fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also I find that quite often with some of the accompaniment writing that Brahms uses. It's closer allied to Schubert than it is to Beethoven, as well. Okay. So that's my um, mix there, and also the fact putting in the waltzes as well because of Schubert waltzes and the whole Viennese feel. It's a lightness that yeah. through. Brahms and Schumann, obviously that that, that uh-huh. that's a given. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Brahms and Chopin, um, there is a striking resemblance between the two skirts.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The the Opus Four of Brahms. And the B flat minor of Chopin. Okay. It's incredibly close, um, and the, also the Opus Four Scherzo by Brahms is the is the first uh, surviving composition of his. Okay. Uh, and he said, I think somewhere that he wasn't influenced by Chopin, but I I, I really can't follow that because <laughs> it's, it's striking the similarities. You know, even even the, um, the 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 sort of trio section in the middle. I mean. The, the accompaniment writing, the the length of the, the melodic line in it, everything is just, it's so similar. It's mm-hmm. demonic. It's it's amazing. Mm-hmm. But, so that's that one. And then the final one, the Brahms plus Liszt. I, I know there was this story about, you know, Brahms going on hearing Liszt play his sonata and falling asleep. Could you imagine him actually doing that? I don't know. <laughs> you know I, I think it was a pretty sort of... Um, he, I think he was aware of you know where he was in in the world at that time. Yes, and I don't think he would have made such a, 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 such a huge faux pas <laughs> as a, as a thing, as, you know, in front of somebody who was considered the greatest pianist of the time. You know, it's, it's just a bit too much to. to and I think actually he was he was quite an admirer of Liszt in in many ways. And I think he was aware that Liszt actually did a great deal to promote other composers as well.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: And also, you know, List is, is is also connected with the Paganini variations as well. And also, I thought it would be nice to actually have the one piece of List in this entire piece, which is the intimate part of the programme. Yes. People tend to put List down as, you know, the, the fireworks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a nice way to just flip it the other way around instead.
0: Just as a point of interest, which com- which composers do you think Brahms' Brahms's piano music influenced subsequently?
1: Subsequently? Yeah. Oh, that's a very interesting
0: one. Um, Would someone like Bozzoni or, or anybody that kind of people, or I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm just, in, I'm just interested to, yeah. You know, I wouldn't have a view yeah. on this. So, uh,
1: I think he influenced quite a few sort of the uh, British composers. Um, I mean, I've always felt this sort of feeling of Vaughan sort of Williams coming through. Oh, know. right, that's interesting. Yeah. Gosh. Um, and possibly one or two of the French. I, 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 I've, now and again, there's a feeling in some Debussy that there's a, a kind of a Brahmsian feel.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Which is not um, what you'd expect, is it? I mean, no, it's yeah. not.
1: No, it's just kind of, a, I don't know, just the use of, of, of harmonies and, you know, the chordal sort of feeling in his piano music. Yes, yes.
0: Uh, yes, I mean, because Debussy can be quite sort of... Um, you know, one thinks of him as being all very, you know, mercurial, and 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 and, yeah. and and suddenly you get these bits. So it's quite blocky sometimes, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, w- what have you missed out?
1: Um, well, the only things I've missed out are the um, things like his own arrangements of things, uh, so the movement from the quintet and the his own. Um, he, he did a version of, you know, Chopin Etudes and things like that. He, he, right. Yeah, he did his kind of transcriptions. Right. So I haven't done any of those. Uh, so basically, this is everything that is with an opus number. Right. Going through from one to one one nine. Right.
0: Right. So it really is pretty.
1: Yeah.
0: And just so on, have you recorded all these pieces, or in, in your in your series, or?
1: Yes, I have. Yes, it's, it's all done now. Yeah. yeah. So
0: so so this is it's obviously a very big project for you in yeah. recent years. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so um, this will keep it going for the next two years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> are you are you taking it to other venues as well?
1: Um, trying to just you know see what happens.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> so this is the, but this is the first time you've really played such a large scale bronze project anywhere. Yes.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: It is. Okay. And and what are your particular um, thoughts about playing it in the Wigmore?
1: Well. Um, first of all, I mean, I'm really looking forward to it. I, I mean, I've always liked playing in the Wigmore. Mm. Um, when
0: did you first? When did you first appear there?
1: Oh, a long time ago. It was when I was. Uh, I just left college, I think. So you
0: were, you were kind of. It was in that phase. But when, when, when there used to be lots and lots of uh, young artists yes. appearing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. And, and it was there was the Perso Room and there was Wigmore Hall. And yes. Obviously, Wigmore week, uh, Hall was was considered much higher. Yes. So, yes, yeah. I, I sort of played there. Yeah. But then um, there were quite a few years before I played there again. Right. Um, but I, I like the intimacy of the place. Mm-hmm. Um and, and I find that actually quite a lot of Brahms is incredibly intimate and personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it needs the space. And I, I find that, I've always found that audiences of the week more allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, I, it, it seems like the ideal venue to do this,
0: mm-hmm. this
1: series, really.
0: Mm-hmm. And is there anything that you're performing here that you haven't actually performed in public before, or...? Uh,
1: yes. Yes, there are one or two, because, you know, cause some of these pieces I learned specifically for the recordings. Uh, right, right. And... It's, then it was very difficult to program them. So, yes, there are one or two pieces that uh, will be first actual public performances. First public
0: performances. Yeah. That's fantastic.
1: I know, I, I mean, I've had some interesting reviews from all these, these um, CDs. Yes. And, and I think it, the general consensus is that it's gone down well. But I know that it, sometimes it can be a little bit controversial. I haven't gone out of my way to purposely play differently from other people. Mm. That's a pointless thing to do. Mm -hmm. I just feel strongly about certain things, and I always kind of come back to this. I remember seeing a poster once, and it's about this huge shoal of fish swimming from left to right. Yes. And then there's one tiny fish swimming from right to left, and there's a little thought bubble above his head saying I know I'm right <laughs> and you know, I kind of sometimes think of that you know <laughs> and, and I don't want you to sort of feel oh this is an arrogance and I'm saying everybody is wrong i just just the that this is just so strong for me that I can't think of it uh, in the way that I know people are used to hearing from.
0: and what, 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 what do you think exemplifies you swimming in the other
1: direction? Um, I think another thing I think OK, I think quite often pedalling is the main thing.
0: That OK.
2: It,
1: it makes a huge difference in Brahms. mm mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes pianists have a pathological hatred of losing a bass note. OK. So they will shove the pedal down, and it needs to go for the whole bar. mm mm-hmm. Or for the whole harmony. Right? mm mm-hmm. And I think that's, that works against what Brahms is actually writing.
0: Why do pianists think that way, do you think?
1: Um... I don't know. I think I think sometimes it's it's an easier way to think.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think we've always been sort of told that you know the bass is very important. It underpins the whole harmony. Mm-hmm. But in actual fact, you can you can play a bass note, and and the audience or the listener can still hear that bass note even when it's disappeared. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's kind of obvious when it's, it needs to feel as though it needs to go through. Mm-hmm. But. Um, Oh, I don't know. I mean, we can get really contentious here. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it's,
0: I, I don't think we need to get. It was, it was just purely so, because I, you know, I'm not a pianist myself, so uh, you know, and. Right, just... Well, I mean, a,
1: a prime example, and this is why I feel he's quite close to Schubert. Well, I got my grade eight, but it was a
0: long time ago. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. Well, you know, this is a particularly famous piece: the, la, the the last sonata by Schubert, the Beef Up, Major Sonata. Yes. With the gorgeous slow movement in C sharp minor yeah okay if you actually look at the score you'll see that the the accompaniment that goes uh, uh, under and over the main sort of theme which is a duet mm-hmm. uh, the way the accompaniment's been written is incredibly specific Mm-hmm. it starts off with a cro- uh, a quaver and then there's a demi-semi quaver rest and then there's a little pop-um, which is slurred Mm-hmm. And then there's a time, tiny note over the top. Mm-hmm. There's also a, a quaver, and it's a dot or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, he goes to so much effort to write that. And, and yet, when you think, you know, he was basically a speed writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, the, the sheer number yeah, of... Yeah, he churned stuff, stuff out, yeah. Years yeah, he had, and the output yeah. was huge. Yeah. So he just kind of came through, and I don't think he even tried half this stuff on the piano. He didn't have time, you know. Mm. He, just, he just came to him. Mm. So he's hearing things, but if you were in such a rush... Mm-hmm. Why would you get so much effort to write you know, a quaver with a demi-semi-quaver rest and then another semi-quaver you know, going to a whatever? Yes. Why not just write you know, a dot of minim? Mm-hmm. Base? mm-hmm. Uh, and do all this other stuff. You could save yourself so much trouble, and Schubert's constantly doing this. Yes. And it's not because he wants to be mathematically correct. Mm-hmm. It's because his note length and note lengths make a huge difference. Now, if you just shove the pedal down... You're losing all that.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And they say, okay, yeah, but the harmony is all C-sharp minor for that whole bar, so why mm-hmm. don't you need to change it? hmm But it's changing the texture. hmm And that's actually, it sounds more like a string quartet.
0: Right, right.
1: It's a on the top. Yes, yes. You know, a double bass pizzicato maybe, even. Yes, whatever. Yes, And that's it, so this textual thing, and I think that that's what, what Brahms is doing as well
0: so so would you say i mean going back to what you said right at the beginning do you think i mean this perception of his textures as being thick is a misconception
1: yeah, yeah it, it, it happens because he's overpedal
0: right and 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 that kind, the kind of detail you've talked about in Schu- in schubert is there in bronze as well
1: oh it's it's, it's just as much yeah. right right yeah i mean one one other example and this is probably i mean you could probably hear this anyway is one of the four ballads is mm-hmm. second one mm-hmm. the and it's basically a lullaby mm-hm And it starts off with this beautiful sort of accompaniment opening. Mm -hmm. And it's basically over a D major um, harmony. Mm -hmm. And the left hand actually goes D, A, D, A, D, A, D, A, and it just goes up and down. Mm -hmm. Now, if you think about it, that could quite easily be a cradle rocking. Mm -hmm. It's a lullaby. Mm -hmm. But because it's all on D major, people hold the pedal all the way through it. Yes. So therefore, we've got a bass note that just sits there. And therefore, he doesn't allow the cradle to rock. It's not going one word. Okay. Okay. And he also says, Sempre legato. Now, if he says, Sempre legato, why why would he even need to write that down if he wants it all pedaled? Yes. There is one pedal marking at the end of the first, first, first page. Mm-hmm. And he puts it for the final bar, and that's because he wants you to hold the final the final bass note.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Which would imply that he doesn't want you to do it anywhere else. Otherwise, why would he make a difference mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. He also does that in the last of those sets of four ballads as well he does exactly the same thing right if you actually pedal it the way I mean he, he doesn't say I mean he's a bit like like Schumann in a way Schumann just puts the pedal marking at the beginning of every piece mm-hmm. apart from when he doesn't want you to do it at all and then he'll say send a pedale but otherwise he's, he's basically saying license to use pedal you right but it's not specific in that you know use pedal all the time it's just use it when you want to yes when you feel it needs it. Yes. So in this case he's doing it. So brand will only put pedal markings when he wants a specific pedal marking. Okay. And quite often it's to catch a bass note. hmm Which would also imply that perhaps he doesn't mind if you lose the base note. hmm Do you see where I'm coming with this? Yeah, interview? yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. So
1: it's I don't know. I, I, I may be completely off off here but it just feels very strong to me. So it's it's
0: not it's not pedalling by default, as it were.
1: No, no. exactly. Yeah, right. and I think that's what what a
0: lot of people do because they pedal it the way they would pedal anywhere else. And 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 in the sense that it's there's a tendency to pedal according to harmony as opposed to texture and to yes. to rhythm and things.
1: Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah.
0: Sorry, what was the last thing you said then?
1: And line. And
0: line, yeah. 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 OK, now that's incredibly helpful, so thank you. OK. And, and, and next time I, I sit down at a piano, which doesn't happen very often, I will think about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you very much indeed. Now I'll let you out get, hope you can enjoy some nice tush to sunshine today.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful day today.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you very much indeed. No doubt see you at some point at the Wigmore. Okay. All right. Thank you very much indeed. Really helpful. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.